This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure, as always, to have your company. This week, Lisa Miller joins us for a special one-on-one. In recent weeks, she's made headlines for her decision to quietly leave Twitter following relentless attacks and trolling. It's again reawakened debate about what the platform needs to do to combat this type of abuse. Lisa, however, is certainly not one to be beaten down. The daughter of a politician, she grew up in country Queensland, but always dreamed of a very big life, which her many years as a foreign correspondent for the ABC in cities like Washington DC and London have certainly given her. Her three decades as a journalist has seen her run the gamut, covering everything from politics to terrorist attacks, royal weddings and everything in between. In 2019, Lisa returned to Australia to replace Virginia Trioli on the ABC's news breakfast, alongside her old friend Michael Rowland. Her storied career and the many lessons that she's learnt along the way are all covered in her new memoir, which is aptly titled Daring to Fly, Facing Fear and Finding Joy on a Deadline. Lisa Miller, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. I've loved the book. It, it outlines your fear with flying, but it wasn't always like that, was it? Your, your dad introduced you at an early age to the wonders of flying. In fact, one of the largest sections of the book in many ways is, is the path that your father took to be a pilot. So I'd love to hear more about your dad and your early feelings around flying. Oh, it's such a lovely story that I don't know I've ever really appreciated how lovely it is until friends, including Lee Sales, who appears in the book um, because she and I have been great mates for ages. And she used to say to me, people didn't have a childhood like yours, Lisa. You should write about it. And it's the case that uh, mum and dad had been dairy farmers in country Queensland. I had three much older brothers and sisters, but by the time my younger sister and I came along, mum and dad were no longer dairy farming. They were still on the property. Dad had always had a dream of being a pilot. He'd had a pretty tough childhood. World War II approached. He wanted to sign up to be a pilot in the RAAF. His mum had begged him not to. She worried he would go off to war and never come back. And uh, and he'd always just sort of hung on to this idea. It was something that infused the rest of the family as well. Um, everyone talked about flying, everyone knew planes. We understood that altitude was a good thing. You could never have enough altitude, Dad would often say to us. And then when I was very young, in fact, before I was born, Dad started building an airstrip on right. the property in Kilkeven. I guess having such a, a thorough understanding of how it all works, you know, it, it really puts lie to the myth of ignorance as bliss because it was almost like 
you you knowing how it all worked and and how it all came together uh, made you it, it, it sort of destigmatized it to you in a sense. Oh, it was like jumping in a car and yeah. driving down to Brisbane. I mean, we didn't think about it when we had our little Piper Cherokee plane. Um, it was a four-seater. It gave us so much freedom. It was how I grew up, sort of going down to the hangar, mm-hmm. pulling India Echo Charlie out, and off we'd go somewhere with Dad at the controls. And so that's why it was then so odd to not only just me but the rest of the family when I ended up developing this fear of flying that became this all-consuming thing in my life. And my dad would say, oh, Lassie, I can't believe you're (laughs) afraid of flying. You know, it's like because we just all loved flight in the family. And so at least his fear of flying became a sort of larger-than-life thing as well. Well, we'll get back to to how your fear of flying started and how you managed it, but but let's turn first to your path to being a journo. So your dad was a politician in the country party and, well, he wasn't exactly thrilled with your desire to to become a journalist, but he he still helped you, of course. Why did you want to become a journo and, and how did your dad help you? Oh, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to become a journo. I remember just being fascinated by it from very early on, watching the reporters, mm-hmm. talking to Dad. Um, you know, he went into politics when I was four or five and he was in for 16 years. So it was pretty much my sort of childhood and teenage years right. watching how the media worked. And I'd go down to Canberra. And I'd sit in the house and I'd watch Question Time. Dad was the deputy speaker. He'd often be in the chair. And I was less fascinated with what was happening on the political front and more fascinated with watching the press gallery and the names and faces of people that I'd been reading and watching on television. You've got to remember too, Tina, when you grow up in the country, you don't have a lot of choice for your media consumption. So it's pretty much the ABC or one sort of local television mm-hmm. station which never had, you know, much on. Like, so the ABC was it. So I grew up on a diet of news and current affairs and was encouraged certainly that way by Dad. But then when I said, no, 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 I really want to become a journalist, I can remember him going, mm, really, is that <laughs> really the career you want? But like any great supportive dad, he... um he did what he could to, you know, help me and encourage me and, um, in fact, helped make a meeting happen with the late Richard Carlton, who was at that time a presenter on a program called the Carlton Walsh Report yes. uh, in Canberra. And um, the meeting with Richard was, uh, you know, quite a defining moment as I sort of developed the idea of what I wanted to do because he basically said, hey, listen, if you're going to do this, don't bother if you're not passionate and if you don't plan on being the best you can be because there are plenty of mediocre journalists out there. And I remember that was the word he used. It was like, we don't need another mediocre journalist, so if you're going to do it, be good. (laughs) And I I, I wrote down the notes on the motel note paper straight away and I've still got that piece of paper. I was about to ask, do you still have the piece of paper? Remind myself, yes. Uh. I can't believe how many things I have managed to keep given that I have moved and packed up my life so many different times but and you know overseas and back to Australia and but I I do have a few special things that remind me of those moments that were uh, defining moments. 
So your first big break was a job as the North Queensland reporter in Townsville for the ABC. So you're a young reporter in a job that involves flying and lots of it. Uh, All good because, you know, you grew up flying and you love it. But something then happened while you were working in North Queensland. Could you tell us a bit about how your love of flying turned to, to fear? It was a sunny day when we took off from Townsville, heading to Mm. a mine in central Queensland on a charter flight that was just a a same-day flight, a very quick turnaround to film at the mine for the 7.30 program. On the Mm -hmm. way back to Townsville, we hit some thunderstorms and the pilot was trying to make sure that he had rationed enough petrol in his main tank. He had reserves, but he just wanted to check where everything was. Mm -hmm. He flicked to change tanks and there was an airlock and it starved the left propeller and the left engine of fuel. And so the propeller spluttered. And that feeling you have when you suddenly realise your altitude is dropping. And, you know, as Dad always used to say, you could never have enough altitude and if you're losing it, then you know you're in trouble. And, look, I don't know how long that moment lasted for because I do know when people are in shock, it's they often think things have lasted for longer Mm -hmm. than they have. And so it may have only been a few seconds before the pilot was able to restart that engine. But we definitely dropped a bit. It was definitely scary. By the time we landed on the ground back in Townsville, the cameraman and I sort of looked at each other and went, oh, that was a bit hairy. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we got on with it. Like we went and had to get on a plane not long after that to fly to Thursday Island for another story. And the fear from that that was triggered was a gradual thing. Like it wasn't something that was an immediate, oh my God, I don't want to get on a plane again. Mm -hmm. It was just this creeping sensation that things were out of my control and something that I had felt very safe doing was no longer feeling safe. I can sort of somewhat relate to this because I travelled a lot in my work and I'm always, you know, I was at one point always hopping on a plane and um, weirdly enough, love to travel, really don't like flying. It was, yeah, I had a bit of a fear of flying Mm. uh, as well. And I think a lot of it came from an incident that I had uh, in the air one evening. So I I, I completely get what you... There are so many people, yeah, yeah, there are so many people who... Uh, don't and they range, Tina, from you know feeling just a little bit anxious mm. to then to the extreme of, you know, like I was not the ultimate extreme because I still made myself get yep. on every plane that I had to get on for work. But that was more a sense of, well, this is my job. I've got to sign up. You know, I can't not take a flight. Absolutely. But I, yeah. the, the energy, the brain energy that it took to deal with the fear was absolutely exhausting. So how, how did you manage to overcome it? I was finally pushed to do a fear of flying course. Right. And the best thing that was said to me at the time was by the instructor who said, you know, you have spent a decade building this fear up and you are not going to get over it immediately. Like this is going to require work from you. You're going to have to put as much work into, you know, removing the fear as you have into sort of creating this environment where you believe every time you get on a plane, you're going to die. And then they gave you the tools and they, 
you know, I, it was just the best thing. Like it, it, and it took me probably about two years after that course to then feel, to have that first flight where I thought, wow, I actually am not feeling the fear like I normally do, mm-hmm. you know. So it was a long time. And then it was some time after that before I started treating flying again like jumping in a car or on a bus. And uh, so it did take a bit of work, but I, I am now at the absolute other extreme of where I have been and I can't wait to get on planes and I feel so happy and relaxed and, I'm, you know, I'm excited about... Um, which model aircraft I'm going to be getting on and, oh, is it the A380 that's flying this leg? I'm so excited. You know, it's all that kind of stuff that's going through my head but not worrying about it now but just enjoying it. Fantastic. Well, going back a bit to 1994, you've just got a job with the ABC in Canberra covering federal politics. Now, at that point, Paul Keating was Prime Minister, uh, opposition leader. uh, John Hewson was giving way to Alexander Downer, so quite interesting times. Now, you grew up in a very political household, so I'd be keen to hear a little bit more about your time in Canberra and whether you really felt in your element. Look, I think I was... I felt in my element that it was a great team of people, um, but Parliament House in Canberra is a big place and I'd sort of mm. grown up in the old Parliament House uh, and so here was the new Parliament House. So, I, you know, just finding your way around was always a mm-hmm. bit intimidating. Um, I did know some of the politicians um, on both sides of politics mm-hmm courtesy of that sort of background. But I don't know, I mean, I spent two years there and I think it was a great learning environment. And I think it's, you know, I'd advise any reporter to do some time at Parliament House because you learn about committees and legislation and, and how democracy works as well as, you know, all the nitty gritty of the politics. But I didn't ever desire madly to go back again right. I must say and I'd, and I'd had that opportunity over the years to return to Canberra to take up positions there but it's not something that's drawn me even though you know in both my roles overseas in Washington and London there was certainly a lot of politics there as well and um I was glad that I'd had that experience in Canberra. So you're always surrounded by politics of some sort, even if you're running the local sporting community club, there is politics. But I don't know that Canberra, that I felt like, oh, this is my place, this is where I want to be forever. Definitely not. Okay, so you've just mentioned Washington, of course. Um, So, you know, you finally landed the big fish. You're on your way to the ABC's Washington Bureau and you arrived some 12 weeks after 9-11. So... I guess you, you really must have been filled with an you know an entire range of different emotions. Tell yes. us about tell, tell us about those early days in Washington. What a remarkable yeah, period! Was, oh, incredible! So it was December the first, two thousand and one, that I landed, and Ground Zero was still smouldering. They had not been able to put out all the fires yet. Um, I was equal parts excited at this new adventure and being part of this incredible story that was unfolding, but also with elevated anxiety about your day-to-day life because you were constantly being reminded that America was on edge. You know, the F-16s flew above Washington 
24 hours a day because they were still so concerned that there was going to be another attack on the capital. If you were on the metro and it stopped between stations, everyone would just look at each other. If you were in a tunnel, you know, and Mm -hmm. suddenly the train stops, you just straight away, you don't think, oh, well, you know, it's stopped because the train ahead is too slow or whatever. You go, oh, my God, something's happened, you know. So you you were in that sort of elevated sense of um, not panic at all, but it just... You never, you never felt like you were completely in your comfort zone, basically. My husband at the time, he and I used to say, okay, well, if something happens again, how do we get in contact with each other? Because the first thing that happens is that the mobile phone systems go down, you lose contact, you know, so you have conversations with each other that you wouldn't have ever anticipated you'd be having mm. before September 11. So during your time in the US, many key events happened, but one of them, of course, was an Australian by the name of David Hicks finding himself in Guantanamo Bay. But you also briefly interviewed Fidel Castro. How would you describe those years in your first stint in America? Oh, I was wide-eyed. Everything was an incredible experience. Uh, The interview with Fidel Castro came in Havana and it was a job that I wasn't even intended to be on. Mm. Um, One of my colleagues, Tim Lester, was supposed to be going to Cuba to file a foreign correspondent story and he hadn't been able to go. So they asked if I would go and, of course, I jumped at it. It was going to be my first Mm. foreign correspondent. And, um, you know, we had followed Fidel Castro, sort of kept an eye on him all week, We'd been putting in requests for interviews. He'd been knocking us back. We were doing a story on whether the young people were actually going to be able to push through with this burgeoning demand for democracy in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And Fidel Castro knew we were there, knew the Australian crew was chasing him. And then finally we find him at a trade show, which seems odd in itself, and a a US-Cuban trade show. And we're following him around and... He's drinking chocolate milkshakes, which is, you know, a bit of a nod to the fact that at one time the CIA (laughs) was supposed to have poisoned his chocolate milkshake. I thought, man, this guy is, he's like trolling, trolling the US really with what he's doing here and his actions. Anyway, eventually we caught up with him and, you know, I, I called out to him in my very best sort of, you know, bad accent saying, Mm. El Presidente, Australian (laughs) television. And then, of course, my wonderful producer uh, zipped in and was able to speak to him in Spanish. We'd thought about what questions we were going to ask if we caught up with him. And, um, yeah, it was one of those moments where you step away and you go, wow, did we just interview Fidel Castro? And it was interesting having been in Havana on one side of Mm. Cuba when Guantanamo Bay takes up a a tiny little area on Mm. the other side and it's leased by the Americans and, of course, that's where... Um, you know, they still to this day have prisoners, detainees, um, you know, going through military trials. And it's, you know, that in itself, I I went to Guantanamo Bay twice, in fact, um, 10 years apart. And, you know, it was incredible. When I first got there, it was wire cages, and the planes were still coming in from 
the Middle East where they had uh, disgorged their prisoners wearing their orange jumpsuits with their hands and feet shackled together and the hoods over their heads and the, the US military took us down to the to the uh, airstrip and we were able to sort of sit on the grass and watch this parade of prisoners being mm. delivered. And then, you know, to go back 12, you know, 10, 12 years later and see that, you know, it is basically a huge city, you know, that it's gone are the wire cages, of course, but it's, you know, incredible um, facilities and a permanent population of Americans all because of the people that we were watching being brought off the planes that day. And I feel that way with the 20 years on and off that I was overseas for the ABC, that um, so much of it, so much of it related back to that September 11 terrible day. Of course. And I'd learned that I'd only just got the posting a few days before September 11. So they'd rung me and told me I had the, that I was going to be the North America correspondent. And then September 11 happened. And then I moved to America a few months after that. But when you look forward to when I was then in Europe and the terrorist attacks that happened, Mm. all of it, all of it could be linked back in some way to what went on, on that day in September. So that was obviously during your first stint in the US, uh, during George W. Bush's first term. You were there until 2005. You then, of course, returned a few years later and covered essentially a very different president and a very different time uh, for America. So tell us a little bit more uh, about those years, that, that second stint. It's interesting because when I left in 2005, I can remember thinking, that America was a very angry Mm -hmm. place. People were angry. Um, It was, you know, they were were still protesting on the streets over the Iraq war. They felt like they'd been lied to, um, which they had been, um, over the Mm -hmm. weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And so when I returned in 2009, the first thing that struck me was, oh, people are so much happier. Much more hopeful. <laughs> On a very sort of yeah. basic level, there was still an element of hope. Um, but then even for those who had been such great supporters of Barack Obama, yeah. um, there was a, then a sense of, oh, but he's not moving fast enough, he's not mm. doing enough, mm. he's, you know, he made a lot of promises but he's not following through. And... It was interesting to sort of be there. And I was there until um, June 2015. Mm-hmm. So it was a six year, six years almost to the day that I spent in America. And kind of when I look at it, I think I saw, I saw what was happening that then was not encouraged, but then it was kind of like why you then saw the Donald Trumps and right. the sense of the world emerging. Oh, I was always taken by a friend of mine, an African-American who was in my book club, actually. And mm-hmm. um, I remember saying to her when we were talking about Barack Obama and the presidency, and, and she said to me she thought it would be the worst thing that had happened for black Americans. And I said, why on earth would you say that, that a black American is president of the US? Mm. And she said, because I think we will be punished for it. 
And that was, uh, I've never right. forgotten her saying that because I thought, oh, God, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But really, in retrospect, when you saw then the, um, you know, the black deaths in custody and mm-hmm. the, the, the riots that went on and to this day how black Americans are treated and the inequality that still exists, you know, I don't know whether they would say that Barack Obama's presidency improved their lot. Um, it's, you know, I think mm. even now mm. we will probably have to wait some time to really understand and examine how history his, is going to read yeah. that period. Yeah, because, and, it's a, and it's a complicated one. It's a complicated story, really. I mean, he also took over during such, and, and you would have, you know, arrived not long after this, just after the GFC, really oh, very yes. much on the back foot. Terrible, terrible economy. I mean, there were so many things going wrong mm. for for that White House straight away. that yeah. And, you know, it was the rise of the Tea Party, remember that? It was the, mm. the, you know, the wing of the Republican Party that became this very conservative right-wing side of the Tea Party, um, strong religious beliefs that then, you know, ended up with a lot of power. And mm. Barack, Obama, Barack Obama, you know, was not able to counter that on many occasions. He really was desperate to get his health care policy through. Mm-hmm. That was the key of his legislation. So there Many presidents so many have nearly things. fallen on that sword before as well. Oh, God, you know, yes. Clint, yeah, you think so, of Clinton and, you know, yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Just so many things going on. I mean, you know, that's the thing with America. It is such an incredible unfolding story all the time from, you know, the creation of that country mm. to this day. It, and that is why, as a journalist, it is just an, a, an amazing bureau to be in. So the fact that I ended up having almost nine years there is such a privilege. I pinch myself that mm. I was able to um, have that experience. So 2015, you moved to London to take up the position of London Bureau Chief and you found yourself covering a range of stories and some of them quite horrific. You know, the job asks so much of people who, who bring us the news and, and not just journalists. I'm thinking of the camera people as well. Did you find yourself being quite weighed down by all of this? And if so, why? Did you, how did you, and how did you manage to find your way out? Look, I don't, I don't know whether weighed down is the right term. I, I feel like it was the most challenging time of my career. Mm. But would I do it all again? Absolutely. Mm. You know, because I think even the things that um, challenge you and you may fail at are still making you the person you are today. Mm. And, you know, there were many terrorist attacks that I covered and, you know, the Grenfell building fire, mm-hmm. um, you know, look, gosh, so many things in such a short period of time. I mean, you arrived. Frankly, it was a three-year posting, but yeah. it just seemed to be sometimes we, you know, you'd just finish filing for one story and suddenly another one would come along. It certainly, in the period of 2017, it was happening so regularly and we were so short on sleep that some nights some of us would just end up throwing a pillow on the couch in the office and not bother going home. Because of the time difference, you'd be filing until one o'clock in the morning for the Australian audience. And then, you know, if you caught maybe four hours sleep, you'd wake up and it would then be um, Mm -hmm. PM and 7pm news in Australia and you would have to go live again. 
what I there was one moment. It, it was just after the Brexit vote, mm-hmm. and I was outside Downing Street with a producer called Emily Bryan, and she hadn't been with us for very long. She was from Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Great reporter. Um, I was very so lucky with all of the staff that I worked with. They were fantastic. Um, but Emily and I were there. We were waiting for David Cameron to come out and to resign as Prime Minister of Britain because mm-hmm. of this um, vote that he had taken to a referendum mm-hmm. and failed so badly over. And I said to Emily, just pause and remember this moment because we are watching history yeah. happen. And I'm I remember that because there are so many parts of history that whizzed by while I was busy on the phone getting my filing plan or I was trying to find the nearest toilet or I was working out where I was going to get a bottle of water from or how we were going to get to the press conference down the end of the road when there was a police barricade between us. And you just, you have to compartmentalise so many things in your life when you're a foreign correspondent. And if I've got one regret, and I don't have a lot of regrets, I sort of don't, I don't believe in regrets grids Mm -hmm. but it's that I wished at the time of history happening I had paused for more moments. Yeah because it's almost like you sort of get get lost in the logistics of everything else that you almost forget to take stock of how deadline. yeah, Yeah. Yeah yeah absolutely. So okay, let's fast forward then to the to the present. So you're back in Australia, and you have a very different job on ABC News Breakfast. Uh, you've taken over from Virginia Trioli, who spent nearly a decade uh, with that pro or over a decade with that program, and and uh, saw it from its conception really with uh, Michael Rowland. Now clearly, you're a very driven individual, but Breakfast TV is an extremely tough gig. What about this new role gets you out of bed when the alarm goes off in those uh, very, very early hours? Look, I have always thought of myself as an hors d'oeuvres kind of person. (laughs) I like to not order one meal. I like to try lots of different meals. And with (laughs) breakfast, you get light, shade, serious, difficult, breaking news, all in the space of three hours. Um, And so the light interviews tend to be planned ahead, although sometimes they can pop up during the program, something can happen and suddenly you get a message in the ear saying that you're about to interview someone about new safety mechanisms for koalas or whatever (laughs) might, you know, you just straight away you go into it. But I I do like being first with it all, knowing it. Setting the agenda for people's days. Yeah, and and be able to say, hey, while you were sleeping, history happened and here it is and I'm going to be able to tell you about it. And I love that feeling and I love it that it's a bit of everything mm-hmm. and you never know what's coming. I mean, honestly, every single show there is something that surprises us. News will break while we're on air equipment bite break while we're on it you never know what's going to you never know what's going to come along and then the other thing is that I work with an incredible team who are all friends and we just get on so well and so the warmth that you see between us on air is what is off air and so that makes it very easy to get over that initial feeling of why is my alarm going off at 3am? Right. <laughs> Once you're in there, you realise you're there with friends and you're driven by the stories of the day. 
Can I ask, do you actually get uh, less or more sleep than uh, when you were filing uh, as a, a for, as bureau oh, chief over in London? That is such a good question. That is such a good question. I think I get less sleep, but it's more predictable. Right, So I okay. know that I'm going to be sleeping in my own bed every night, but I'm only ever going to get six and a half hours sleep. Okay. Whereas when I was overseas, I never knew where I was going to be ending up staying the night because things could happen and off you go. You just grab your go bag and you jump on a plane. But you might end up getting more sleep because when you're not on the big stories, you're still able to, you know, live a relatively normal life, even Mm -hmm. though I got to the point where the phone would ring at, you know, one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning and I would just pick it up and say, what's happened? (laughs) <laughs> because there was always something that had happened. Right. So it was never, the phone never rang and you go, oh, hi. It's just straight away. And, and the message would be very quick. They'd say, we're keeping an eye on an earthquake. We've right. got a plane booked at 6 a.m. Can you go to t- Turkey? You know, like there would always be something and you just got very used to moving very quickly. Like I wake up super quickly. I'm mm-hmm. not one of these people who um, sort of, you know, has a snooze button that gets hit three times right. and like as soon as the alarm makes the faintest sound, I am up and out of bed. Um, so, yeah, that, that is a great question. No one's asked me that question before. I think less in this job but it's more predictable. Fantastic. Well, we, we aim to be ingenious here at, uh, at, at Fourth Estate, so <laughs> I'm glad nobody well, else has you have asked. done it. I'm, I'm re- you know I'm going to really think about that now. I'm going I'm to start really calculating. Wow. And because people get so obsessed about sleep as well. Of course, yeah. People are fascinated by it, you know, and we talk about it. We bore ourselves. At, you know, it's the first thing we talk about when we get in there. It's like, did you have a good night's sleep? Oh, I woke up at 1 a.m. I couldn't get back to sleep or had a terrible you're, night's sleep. You're so right. I worked yeah. Whenever I've worked in newsrooms doing breakfast, that's the first thing we ask each other. We go, how'd yeah. you sleep last night? <laughs> we go, yeah. It's a funny old world. Yeah. We have very different lives when you do breakfast TV oh, yes. or breakfast radio. Yes, yes. And lots of sympathy and empathy for the for the partners that have to sort of go along with it as well. And, uh, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. God, those alarms that go off. Yeah. So here on Fourth Estate, we've we've been talking for several years with journalists about the powers and the, the power and, and problems of social media to the profession. And over that time, we've seen an increasing wariness around it, especially on Twitter. Now, you've, of course, in recent weeks have just left the platform, not in a blaze of glory, but quietly. Uh, tell us a little bit about that decision. I was an early adopter of Twitter and it's been really useful to me over the years. So I was pretty disappointed that I reached a point where I thought I need to leave because, Mm -hmm. you know, look, it might have been the, you know, the new job. So certainly there was a bit more attention on me courtesy of that. But I also was getting just some really unpleasant Mm -hmm. um, abuse that was not, related necessarily to the work that I was doing it was just it was personal and and I sort of you could laugh off some of the stuff you know the days when someone says you know your lipstick makes you look like a joker or stop flapping your tuck shop arms around or you know you think okay that's just silly and whatever Mm. but then you know when you have a It was almost like a campaign of bullying Mm. that became a daily affair. And it was, look, it was bringing me down, you know, because Mm. it was very hard to avoid it. And I just thought, well, why 
why am I letting them do this every day to me? So I just decided to go off it, which did create a bit of a, a news um, Mm. story. I get that. I understand that. Um, I wish, it would be my wish that, you know, Twitter could be made to be a safer environment, not Mm. just for women, but for minorities and, you know, because we do tend to be the subject of abuse. Absolutely. Um, The breaking news is still where Twitter is so useful. Mm. And on a day of an earthquake in Melbourne, that is where people turn to to sort of mm-hmm. send pictures and to break news. What am I seeing? This is get what I'm seeing. Accounts. There it is on Twitter. Mm. I get that, but I I had to for myself weigh up the benefit versus the the risk really, and the risk of just allowing myself to be abused. I hope hopefully by what was a small group of people, but they were very noisy and getting mm-hmm. noisier. And look, I've been overwhelmed by the cards and letters and emails that have come in from viewers who've seen what went on and have just said, you know, look, we support you. Sorry that you felt that way. Maybe we should have spoken up more in support of you. That's mm. all been lovely. Mm. I'm just, I just had to make the right decision for me. So it may not be the right decision for other people. I know that there have been academics and people mm-hmm. with opinions who've suggested that vacating the platform is not the right approach and that journalists should continue to be on the platform. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I just think, you know, each their own. They yep. haven't sort of been in my shoes wearing the abuse that I have been wearing for the last year and increasingly so in the last couple of months where it got to the point that there was little I could do that wouldn't attract criticism Mm. on a daily basis, including on one day an interview that I hadn't even done. It had been done on Radio National Breakfast. But someone had then said, well, imagine if Atlisa Miller had done this interview and that then encouraged everyone to pile on as to their imagining what might have happened if I had done that interview. So, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I was having to wade through yeah. on a daily basis just to make the platform usable. It, it's interesting as well that you, you you mention women and how they're treated increasingly on the platform. And that is where I do, where I think many of us increasingly see uh, the pylons happening. You're really great mates with Lee Sales, who is the mm. host of 7.30. And any time that the program's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, uh, seems to tweet something out or any time, you know, she fills in as host, there seems to be this pylon of people who want to attack Lee and, and, and sort of mm. pit these two women against each other who, you know, I happen to know have great respect for each other and, and for mm. what they do and yet there's this sort of pitting of, of women against each other on the platform, these really quite aggressive pylons, which I don't think we would have ever seen, you know, in the days of Kerry O'Brien or, or Barry Cassidy on no. 7.30. Exactly. But, uh, you know, look, I can. I have not had any contact with Twitter. Yeah. Um, I can only hope that their executives have been having a think about what they can do. Um, I've seen that Twitter, you know, has tried to bring in aspects that improve the platform. I have, I mean, I you know, when people say, well, you can restrict this and you can Mm. change that and all the rest of it. I had done all of that. I had put in every restriction I could to the, to the point where I was having to mute 
I was having to put a mute on my own name so it wouldn't keep coming up in right. my feed when people were using it. And if you've got to go to that extent mm. to try and make the platform usable, then you really have to sort of question what's going on. Um, look, you know, I hope they're working at making it a better place because yeah. I can see why it is useful um, and... You know, I just didn't see enough improvement over the time that I was seeing the diminishing state of debate. Right. I mean, and, and maybe it also coincided with the fact that so many people have been in lockdown, there's a lot of mm. anger. Mm. So people needed to feel like they could lash out. I described it to someone like, you know, when, you, you know, you're so angry, you're in a car jam on a highway and your kids are screaming and so you just, you put your hand on the horn and you just go, you know, and yep. then you sort of, the traffic breaks and off you drive and you're done with it and that's fine. But for me, I was getting that horn blaring mm. all the time and... <laughs> And it was very loud. So I think people were angry and they felt like, I'm just going to put my anger out there, right. I'm going to lash out. And then they log off and walk off and mm. resume normal lives. But what, what they've left behind is a this, trail of destruction. You know, yeah. 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 On someone else's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Hugh, Hugh Remington was recently on Fourth Estate and when discussing your decision to leave Twitter, he lamented that the problem is partly that many people want the ABC to just reflect their worldview back to them without any deviation. Do you think he's right? Oh, yes. I think that could be, there certainly could be something in that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's I'm I don't have any communication with the people who are tweeting yeah. the way they were tweeting to me. So you know, if I if I sat down and said to them, well, why why did you tweet that way? Mm. They would say, well, you interrupted so and so or whatever. And right. <laughs> you know, they believe a lot of people believe that you know they have an understanding of the media and how we yes. should operate. Um, Look, I don't know. It's, I mean, even having this conversation makes me hesitant because whatever you say is then interpreted in a way right. by people who want to hear what they want to hear. And I, I feel like that is, you know, that goes to what Hugh is saying. And I think, you know, Hugh is just a fantastic journalist and has a great understanding of um, how things work. And, you know, I, I do think, I do agree that with the column that Lee wrote where she said that Twitter does mm. tend to skew left-leaning and, you know, maybe it's because there mm -hmm. is a federal government that is a conservative federal government that then you find people who are angrier mm -hmm. and believe that, you know, if you're not interrupting people all the time, then you're not holding them to account, mm -hmm. but then they don't want the same treatment of the people they support. You know, it's complicated. I'm sure people have various reasons for the way they act on that platform and I couldn't pretend to guess it mm. other than, you know, I think for the ABC, I think we attract way more commentary on Twitter than most other people do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, I've got colleagues who love it. Mm. I mean, you know, Michael Rowland is a great tweeter mm. and has a very large following and enjoys it and enjoys the sort of cut and thrust of it. Mm. And But he also recognised that he was not 
copying the kind of abuse, abuse that I yeah. was. Yeah. And isn't that for, well? Yeah, it's uh, men tend not to. On well, that we're doing platform. the same. Well, we you know we're doing the same job. We're sitting next to each other. Yeah, you know people might not like how I do my interviews, but the level of abuse that you know was directed towards me yeah. compared to Michael and how personal it was was there in black and white, quite yeah. frankly. I, I mean, I remember watching an interview with uh, your predecessor, Virginia Trioli, and uh, on, she said, you know, on the same day I could be called a member of the Communist Party and uh, also a, a government shill for the Liberal yes. Party. You know, oh, I'm yes. sure you've experienced that going, oh, so absolutely. which one am I? <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, for me, I, I think this is the other thing that just really irritated me is that I've taken pride in um, just being really straight down the line, you know, my yeah. whole journalistic career. And it's only sort of in this last small period where there's been this sort of these kinds of accusations. And yeah. so I can only think I haven't suddenly changed the way I've operated. So I can only think that the external circumstances affecting the people who are mm-hmm. tweeting has changed and that's making them feel the way they do. Well, let's end on a positive note. So far, journalism... Let's. Let's, <laughs> I'm glad you're in agreement. In agreement. <laughs> so far, journalism has taken you all around the world and taken you to, to many of the key moments of this century. In turn, you've brought the world back to Australia. Now, throughout the book, you've been very honest about some of your private fears and how you faced them and, and moved forward within your career. What have been your lessons from this time and how has it shaped your journalism? Oh, my lessons. I think I have been lucky that my innate character trait is to be optimistic and to see good things even when I'm surrounded by bad things. And I recall a moment when I was driving to a marriage counselling session by myself <laughs> and uh, before my divorce when I was much younger and I was feeling pretty blue about the world mm. and I pulled up at traffic lights and a jacaranda tree was blown in the wind and the flowers just covered my windscreen and it was such a beautiful sight. And I've thought about it afterwards and thought, there would be people that that would happen to and they would move their windscreen wipers and the flowers would get stuck and make a mess and then they'd go, ah, you know, (laughs) damn jacaranda flowers. Whereas it happened to me and I went, wow, that's a message actually that the world is going to be okay and how beautiful is this site. And so I think being able to reframe things as they've happened to me during my journalistic career has enabled me to cover some of the hardest stories I've had to cover and still be able to report them to an Australian audience and walk away with my own sort of sanity intact because I do think that at the end of the day the world is a pretty good place even though we constantly see things that might challenge that Mm -hmm. idea. I know that doesn't entirely answer your question about what I've learned, but I feel like, as I said, it's, you know, it's a learning experience every single day with this job. But Mm -hmm. I've learned that even when surrounded by what can feel like the most devastating moments and the grimmest of human conditions, that if you look hard enough, you will find light. You will find the person who is doing something good and 
you can still share that moment as well. We certainly did end on a positive note. Lisa Miller, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Oh, thanks for the chat. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well and catch us next week on Fourth Estate. 